Well, we've been looking at the title, The Servant of the Lord, as it's mentioned in Scripture. And we notice that God has seen fit to bestow this title, The Servant of the Lord, on certain individuals as he would see fit. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is called my servant in chapter 20, verse 3. Also, Israel as a nation is called the servant of the Lord in chapter 41, verse 8, and a number of other places. We saw how Cyrus was referred to as the shepherd servant of the Lord in chapter 44, verse 28. We also came to Isaiah 42, verse 1, and we noticed a distinct reference to the servant of the Lord that could only apply to the Messiah by its description, whom we know to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we've come to this passage that we emphasize begins actually with chapter 52 and verse 13, where we were last time. We began with Isaiah 52:13 that says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And we pointed out how the language of this verse, maybe it's become so familiar to some of us, but when you think about those who would first hear these words, how confounding they would be. Because, first of all, a servant would not be recognized as someone that you would bestow honor upon. A servant would not be someone who would be high and lifted up and honored above all others. And so we tried to get into the Jewish mind to realize how astounding some of these things are, are, uh, that are said would affect those who first heard it. And especially when you come to this passage that says about the suffering of this servant, and we just title it the suffering servant, how this just seems illogical and impractical, unthinkable in the understanding of the Jewish mind. And especially to apply it to the Messiah, they just could not comprehend how Messiah must suffer. Messiah was to be the deliverer and the king and the, the savior, not suffering. And they wouldn't think of the Messiah as a suffering servant or a servant at all. He would be a king. He would be, he would be high and lifted up, but not high and lifted up because he was a servant. Not high and lifted up because he was suffering. And so we were laboring there with those verses, the last part of chapter 52, and then moving into chapter 53. If you remember, Isaiah 53 describes this suffering servant of Yahweh in such an unexpected and undesirable way that it has caused most Jews to reject this chapter and they simply choose to ignore it because of their preconceived understanding and also because they know that we as Christians point to this prophetic passage as applying to the suffering of Jesus of Nazareth, whom we know to be Christ, the Son of God. But in the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish Talmud condemns Jesus of Nazareth to hell as a false Messiah. Did you know that? I mean, that's where the Jewish mind is. They specifically write out Jesus of Nazareth condemned to hell in their mind. False. He's that man. Remember, we were talking about that man. And so, Jewish rabbis will never read Isaiah 53 in synagogue, and they prohibit their parishioners, if you will, their followers, their congregation, they prohibit them from reading this. Because it doesn't fit their preconceived idea of Messiah and because of the Christian emphasis on it. And so they ignore it as though it's not even part of the Hebrew Bible. We were looking last time at part one of the suffering servant. And we studied, first of all, the mystery of the servant and secondly, the suffering of the servant. So this is where we were last time with chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 6. 
Remember, the mystery of the servant was discovered to be the fact that a servant could have importance at all. How could a servant be important? And further, that this servant was absolutely successful, that prophetically he would be, and we know looking back he was, successful in his mission of suffering. And so this was a mystery. A servant suffers and is successful? Those ideas just don't seem to fit. Furthermore, that he would be exalted, extolled, and be very high and lifted up. Speaking of his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. We know that from New Testament texts, but it would not be clear to those who would first hear Isaiah 53. And so no one would anticipate that a servant would be honored above all others. That was a mystery. We also looked at Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6 as part of the suffering of the servant, which included, first of all, his rejection, and then secondly, his substitutionary atonement. Here's a suffering servant, and God says he is successful, and God says he's high and lifted up. But then you read into chapter 53, and he is rejected. Again, can you see the, the difficulty in understanding? We take it for granted, don't we? we? We have read this so many times, and we're so acquainted with it, that we, we miss the problem and confusion that it causes to the unbelieving mind. And so we've got to try to get into that unbelieving mind and understand that this one who came, and this is prophesied 700 years before he came, that he would be rejected. And isn't that what John wrote in his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He came unto his own, and what happened? His own what? Received him not. When Messiah comes, everyone thought, we'll know who he is. He's going to ride in in peace. He's going to be a king. He's going to overthrow all these Gentiles. He's going to restore the kingdom to the glory years of David and Solomon. It's going to be great. But when Jesus came, he talked in odd terms. He re-explained the law in ways that they had never heard. He antagonized the Pharisees. He overthrew the Sadducees. He rejected what the priests were doing. And he talked about how the sacrifice had to be of the heart and not just an outward thing that you do. And then he started saying things like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to become part of me. They couldn't stand that. And they rejected him, and they turned away from him, and they didn't follow him anymore after that. Only the few, the 12 plus 1 minus 1, and the, the women and others that were faithful. Isaiah wrote about a substitutionary atonement. That he would, in fact, take our place that he would bear our sins, that he would carry our sins for us, and that by his wounds, by his suffering, that he would actually bring us healing. And not just temporary physical healing, but eternal spiritual healing. And that's what we read in verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. The word smitten, remember, is a death blow. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. These were words that they did not expect. And then that well-known verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, we've turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is speaking of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, how he bore the sins of the whole world. You realize because his death had infinite value, he could carry not only the sins of the whole world, but an infinite number. 
He is God, and he has no limits. So the mystery of the servant was that he was successful in his mission of suffering for sins. Who would have thought? And even though he was rejected, he persevered, and he fulfilled the Father's will. Now all this now brings me to chapter 53 and verse 7 and today's message. Here's today's message in a nutshell. Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest of all prophecies. We said that Isaiah 53 is the greatest of all prophecies and some would even say that it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. And you might say, well that sounds like it's really pushing it. I've got a lot of favorite chapters in the New Testament. But why might we say that? Because it lays the groundwork for the entire New Testament. You see that? What would the New Testament be without an Isaiah 53? So Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest of all prophecies, the prophecy of the suffering servant. And in this, Jesus showed complete submission to the Father's will. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. Jesus was the perfect example of submission. Has God called you to be submissive in any way, shape, or form? Has God called us to be submissive? What does it say in Ephesians 5.21? That we're all to be submissive to one another. Before it goes in and talks about the husband-wife relationship and the roles that they have, in Ephesians 5.21, it says that we're all to be submissive to one another. And Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. You want to be great in the eyes of the Lord? Then serve other people. Then give your life to service. That's what Jesus said. Because he set the example of submission to the Father's will as the suffering servant. And as a result, here's the, here's the great part. As a result of Jesus' submission, the Father has exalted him above all. Now I want to remind you, when we come here to gather, whose name do we lift up? Do we lift up the name of the Holy Spirit? Do we? Why not? Some churches do. Some whole denominations put all the emphasis on God the Holy Spirit. Why don't we do that? Because Jesus is exalted by the will of the Father. And I want you to know the Holy Spirit desires that Jesus would be exalted. It's the, it's the will of the Father and the purpose of the Spirit both that the Son would be exalted. That's why when we come to worship, we preach Jesus we preach Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not to the denigration of the Holy Spirit. Not to the disrespect of the Father. We recognize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they desire that Jesus should be lifted up. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that Jesus is the one. When we get to heaven, who are we going to see? We're going to see Jesus. And because in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. It says in Colossians 1.18, right? So all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. And if you can see Jesus, you can see all that you're going to get of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it also says in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit is in you representing Jesus. So we're not denigrating the Holy Spirit, and we don't want to forget Him. We're not disrespecting the Father, because He is the Father of all. But we exalt in the name of Jesus, because that is what the Father and the Spirit desire. Okay, now we're ready for Isaiah 53.7. My, my outline today... It's very simple. First of all, the submission of Christ. The exact circumstances of his death and burial. Explained in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. The submission of Christ 
shows the exact circumstances of his death and burial stated 700 years before it happened. And then secondly, the exaltation of Christ, the reason why we lift up the name of Jesus, is the ultimate culmination of his work on the cross. Now I want you to know, whoever stands in this pulpit better preach Christ. Better preach the the. the exaltation of Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross. Preach the doctrine of Christ. What is the doctrine of Christ? His person, who he is, and his work, what he did. That's what we got to know. And that's what we preach. And so let's look at the submission of Christ. Isaiah 53, 7. It's an amazing verse. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We said that the submission of Christ, the exact circumstances of his death and burial, are described here in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. And it begins with his death the circumstances of his death. It says here that he did not open his mouth. What does that mean? Well, I want to offer, first of all, an erroneous interpretation. Erroneous means wrong, okay? You got the word error in there. So we don't want an erroneous interpretation, and we have to be careful. What does this verse not mean? It does not mean that Jesus did not speak at his trials. There are some that say, oh, see that? He was silent. He never said a word. Wait a minute, you have to read the Gospels. Yes, there were times where he was completely silent and refused to answer, but there are other times where he did speak. So an erroneous interpretation would be, this means Jesus did not speak at his trials. No, the correct interpretation is, Jesus did not complain about his sufferings. He did not complain. In fact, let's uh, look at Luke 23. Very interesting passage, by the way. It's almost a little strange, but I want you to see it. It's the passage about the crucifixion. And have you you ever noticed how little is said about the details of the crucifixion in the Gospels? Well, let's read Luke 23, beginning with verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, okay, so Jesus is talking here, and this is leading up to the crucifixion. This is what he says, and it's kind of different. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, we could spend the rest of our time interpreting this passage, but I wanted you to see that Jesus did speak, but he did not complain about his sufferings. In fact, he told the women who were weeping for him, who were compassionate and sympathetic about his suffering, he said, don't weep for me. And that's instructive of us, isn't it? Don't feel sorry for Jesus. He's not a tragic character. Don't weep for Jesus. He says to the women, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. There's going to be a time coming when when some of you who would like to have a family and have children, you won't be able to because you'll be running for your life. That's what he's saying. And so he says, don't weep for me. The correct interpretation, Jesus did not complain about his sufferings. You know, This has been done a multitude of times where medical doctors have attempted to explain the crucifixion, and I wanted to share one of those. 
I have a number of them in my file that I've kept over the years. This one is by C. Truman Davis, and it appears in the, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. What is crucifixion? What actually happened? Jesus said, don't weep for me. But what, what was it that was happening? What is crucifixion? A medical doctor provides a physical description. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards when his shoulders, with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails of the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small amounts of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues, and finally he can allow his body to die. All this the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. It is a good thing for us from time to time to think about the suffering of Jesus, but we are not to feel sorry for him. We are not to have the attitude that he was in some way a tragic person or going through some kind of a tragedy. The passage before us gives us a practical lesson not to feel sorry for Jesus because he is God's masterpiece upon the cross. Have you ever thought of that? This whole thing was God's plan and purpose, and it was a masterpiece plan. The text goes on, going back to Isaiah 53 and verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Again, I don't think we give full import to these words. We read them, we're familiar with them, he was snatched away from prison and judgment is another translation. The NIV margin puts it like this. Who of his generation considered his life important? Remember earlier it describes his physical appearance as being ordinary, compares him to a root out of a dry ground, just kind of appearing out of nowhere. And, and so the people of his day didn't think of him as some spectacular special person. 
It was only from his public ministry and the things that he began to teach that he drew attention to himself. He did not end his earthly life amidst praise and thanksgiving. Did you notice that? There weren't a lot of people around clapping, oh, yeah, you're really great, you know. No. Even his followers were weeping and, and thought it was a complete disaster. In other words, he ended his life in an atmosphere of, of prison and judgment, being arrested and taken from place to place. It goes on to say in verse 8 that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, referring to Israel. Jesus is a separate individual from the nation of Israel for whose transgression he was stricken. He specifically had a purpose with Israel, but that purpose then expanded beyond the borders of Israel to all the world as he offered salvation according to his eternal plan. W.A. Criswell, in his sermon on this um, subject, writes uh, an interesting uh, kind of description of this. I'd like to share Chriswell's words. It says, As though abuse were not vile enough, the cruel, jeering crowd covered him with spittle. They also plucked out his beard. And going further, they crowned him with thorns. And as though the thorns were not agonizing enough, he was pierced through with a Roman spear. It was the earth's saddest hour, and it was humanity's deepest and darkest day. At 3 o'clock p.m., it was all over. The Lord of life bowed his head, and the light of the world flickered out. And now get this part. Tread softly around the cross, for Jesus is dead. Repeat the refrain in hushed and softened tone. The Lord of life is dead. The lips that spoke forth Lazarus from the grave was now stilled in the silence of death. The head that was anointed by Mary of Bethany is bowed with its crown of thorns. The eyes that wept over Jerusalem are glazed in death. The hands that bless little children are nailed to a tree. The feel, the, the, rather the feet that walked on the waters of blue Galilee are fastened to a cross. The heart that went out in compassionate love and sympathy for the poor and the lost of the world is now broken. He is dead. The infuriated mob that cried for his crucifixion gradually disperses. He's dead. The passers-by who stopped just to see him go on their way. He is dead. The Pharisees, rubbing their hands in self-congratulation, go back to the city. He is dead. The Sadducees, breathing sighs of relief, return to their coffers in the temple. He is dead. The centurion, who is assigned the task of executing him, makes his official report to the Roman procurator. He is dead. The soldiers who were sent to dispatch the victim and seeing the man on the center cross was certainly dead, broke not his bones but pierced him through. He is dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus of the Sanhedrin go to Pontius Pilate and beg the Roman governor for his body because he is dead. Mary, his mother, and the women with her are bowed in sobs and tears. He is dead. The eleven apostles, like frightened sheep, crawl into eleven shadows to hide from the pointing finger of Jerusalem, and they cry because he is dead. Whenever his disciples meet, the same refrain is sadly heard. He's dead. It would be almost impossible for us to enter into the depths of despair that grip their hearts Simon Peter, the rock, is a rock no longer. James and John are sons of thunder no longer. Simon the zealot is, is a zealot no longer. Jesus is dead. The hope of the world has perished with him. Can you imagine what they must have felt? Until the men stopped in, dead in their tracks. A message leaps from mouth to mouth like liquid fire. An angel says, he's alive. Mary Magdalene says, I've seen the Lord. Simon Peter is filling Jerusalem with the bold and courageous announcement. He's alive, he's alive, all up and down the highways of Judea, along the shores of Galilee, beyond the coasts of the great Mediterranean, on the road to Athens and Rome, in every poor man's cottage, in every rich man's palace, there is that glorious news. He is alive. You see, beloved, Isaiah wrote the greatest chapter 
when he wrote Isaiah 53. Because God chose to spell out in great detail the exact circumstances of his death and his burial. You notice what it says about his burial. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 9. Well, wait a minute. I missed a part here. I always do that, you know. Let's back up to the middle of verse 8. It says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. To be cut off in the Jewish mind is an ultimate disaster. It means death and separation from God. And furthermore, it says he was stricken for the transgression of Israel. And so to be cut off, to be stricken, this was the worst of the worst. But now verse 9, it says, They made his grave with the wicked. Do you realize the Pharisees intended for Jesus to have a shameful burial? You know, when they left those bodies up on the cross, normally they left them up there for a week. And the birds would come and pick the flesh off the bones. A, a normal crucifixion, the person would not die for two or three days. Obviously, Jesus was scourged. Basically, all the flesh from his back was removed, and he was very bloody and beaten, much worse than the others. But normally, they just crucified you and just let you asphyxiate, and it would take a couple days usually to die. The suffering was so horrible. But you know, no one killed Jesus. He voluntarily laid down his life. It was the Father who put him into that situation. We're going to see that. The Pharisees' desire was for Jesus to have his body just thrown into the valley of Hinnom, the garbage dump of the city. That's what they did with people who were crucified. They were not buried. They were left up there until they died, and then their bodies, whatever was left after the birds, would be thrown on the garbage dump. By the way, have you ever read the last verse of Isaiah? Let, let's just, it comes to my mind, so let's go back and look at it. The very last verse of Isaiah, because I'm not sure how I'm going to handle this when we get there, but Isaiah 66, very last verse. Isn't this strange how Isaiah ends? Have you ever noticed? Very last verse. We're talking 66, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, period, end of book. How do you like that? I don't know. I wouldn't have ended it that way. I would have probably put conclusion or you know, principles from the prophet or something like that. Uh, it just ends with words that Jesus would quote about hell. Do you realize he quoted those verses many times? Where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched? What's that? Well, initially, it's the garbage dump in the Valley of Hinnom where the bodies were to be put and where the Pharisees thought that Jesus' body would end up, but it didn't. But Jesus said that is a picture of eternal hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched, the fire never goes out. That's a picture of eternal hell. Anyone who thinks that there's not an eternal hell or that somehow that God is going to change his mind about it doesn't read scripture. Because the end of the book of Revelation makes it very plain that all death and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. I just thought you'd want to see that last verse. but Let's go back to Isaiah 53 again. Because the Pharisees intended this shameful burial for him. They had plotted an ignominious, shameful burial for Jesus in the valley of Hinnom. But notice the circumstances of Christ's burial are told 700 years before it happened. In Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked. Why? Because he was crucified between two criminals in a place which is near the main road, 300 meters from the place where Jesus was buried, and 300 meters from the altar, 
And it's interesting how the dimensions of all that plays out. But anyway, he was crucified in a place where everyone would see and they thought his grave would be with the wicked in the garbage dump. But God the Father intervened. The next verse, the next line says, and with a rich man in his death. Oh, they made his grave with the wicked, but wait a minute, it's with a rich man in his death. Who was this rich man? It was Joseph of Arimathea, who had cut out a family tomb out of the rock in a garden where there's no other graves anywhere around for 300 meters. No others. Just one special one, you know. And that is where Jesus' body was placed. Why? Because God the Father intervened. He used Pilate, he used Nicodemus, he used Joseph of Arimathea to thwart the plan of the Pharisees. And I want you to know that nothing ever happens by chance. Where Jesus was buried was ordained by God before the foundation of the world and predicted 700 years before it happened. And this is because we know that our God is not chance, but our God is the personal God, the creator and sovereign of the universe. And the reason for this intervention of why he would be buried in a special place is told here he was totally innocent. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so God the Father thwarted the plan. And you know what happens at Jesus' burial? Everything starts to change. All this sorrow and blood and suffering, and Jesus breathes out his last. He cries out, To tell us, die. It is finished. A word that's in the perfect tense, which means something that has happened in the past that has continuing and eternal results in the future. When Jesus breathed out his last, into, my, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he said to the Father. Once Jesus' burial began, the exaltation starts. The plan of the Pharisees is thwarted. God the Father intervenes using Nicodemus and, and Joseph. And he begins something that's going to point which is described in the next section the exaltation would not cease until the son would safely arrive at the hand of the father but once he died his body was carefully cared for and placed in a tomb by the way jesus did not go to hell to suffer more for his death as some have taught jesus did go to sheol hades to proclaim the defeat of Satan and to procure the release of the saints. He did not go there to suffer. Jesus did all of his suffering on the cross and the worst part of his suffering was the separation of the Father for three hours when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the worst because that was spiritual death. Spiritual death is to be separated from God and that's what will happen to anyone who doesn't know Christ and who will end up in the lake of fire. Well, we've looked, we've looked at the work of Christ, the circumstances of his death and burial. But let's look at his exaltation. Notice verse 10. The exaltation of Christ, the ultimate culmination of his work on the cross... In verse 10 it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Does that verse bother you? It should cause us to pause. God the Father was pleased to crush God the Son. It was God the Father who crushed Jesus. The same word that's used earlier in verse 5 where he was crushed for our iniquities. It's not just broken, it's completely crushed. It's not talking about the breaking of his bones, which weren't broken, but the breaking of his person, how he gave everything for us. 
It was God, not men, who crushed Jesus. It was God who was pleased to crush Jesus. It was his will to do so. It causes us to pause. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he put him to grief. But notice what Jesus did with this grief. In the middle of verse 10, it says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Jesus was making his soul a trespass offering on the cross. Do you know what a trespass offering is for? You know, there's six different kinds of offerings that are described in the book of Leviticus. Start reading Leviticus, all about these different sacrifices and offerings. What is the trespass offering? The trespass offering was to compensate the loss of someone who suffered as a result of sin. So you have to have compensation to the person who suffered. Jesus made himself a trespass offering. And God the Father honored that by saying he would see his seed, he would see his spiritual offspring. There's verses like John 12, 24, and Psalm 22, 30, and Hebrews 2, 13. I'm not going to take time to go through all those, but they speak of the fact that, that Jesus... Well, the Hebrews passage talks about how he would have many brothers, and he would look at us as his brothers and sisters. And we could call him our brother. We are his spiritual offspring. That he would have many children, another passage says, because of his trespass offering, because of what he did. In Acts 2.24 and Revelation 1.18, it speaks of the fact that he would prolong his days by his resurrection to immortality. And that's what it says here in Isaiah 53. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's talking about the fact that he would be resurrected. He would come back to life, eternal life. And there would be no end to his days. And it says the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. The pleasure of the Lord would prosper because God would entrust into his hands the eternal destiny of every person who places their faith in the finished work of Christ. I want to ask you today, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in anything other than what Jesus did for you on the cross? If you're here today and you say, I'm a good person, that's like the worst thing that you could say. You know, That's like the last thing that a believer should ever say. What we should say is, all my hope is in Jesus. Jesus took my place. He died for my sins. He paid the penalty. All my hope is in him. That's how believers talk. But really it comes down to not what you say, but what you really believe. Are you living a performance life in your Christian life? Does God love you more when you're obedient than when you're disobedient? Do you think he does? A lot of times we want to perform to please the Lord. And I'm here to tell you you can't do it. By the way, Jesus was perfectly satisfied with his work on the cross, but many people are not. Have you noticed that? Notice what it says in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Do you realize that Jesus is completely satisfied with what he did on the cross? That he paid it all, he finished it? We sang about it today. But there's many people who want to add to what Jesus did. It could be that you're here today saying, yeah, I trust Jesus as my Savior, but I know I really need to get my devotional life together so that he'll be happy with me. Or, you know, uh, I know Jesus died for my sins, but this sin over here, I just keep stumbling over it, and, and, uh, and probably I, I better pay for this. Or we might think, oh, this trial has come into my life because I'm not a good person and I've been failing and, and the Lord's getting back at me. That's not how the Lord thinks. He doesn't work like that. Do you follow that? Yes, there's circum there are consequences to sin. And yes, there's times where the Lord may bring illness or trial to chasten us and bring us back, but he's never doing it in a punitive way. Jesus is completely satisfied with his work on the cross. However, many believers are not, and some who claim to be Christians want to add to what Jesus did. Don't ever do that. 
There's teachings like going to purgatory or doing penance. Don't do those things. There's some people who want to go back and be Jewish. And they want to go back and, and repeat the sacrifices. And they want to live under the law. Don't do that. Because Jesus has satisfied all of that. Jesus knew exactly what he was accomplishing on the cross, but no one else ever did. You know that? He knew exactly what he was doing, and he also knew exactly who he was dying for. And I believe he saw your face as he hung on the cross. The faces of all the ones that he knew. Because of his infinite mind, he knows you personally. He knows you better than you know you. Notice the facts of the victory that Jesus has already accomplished and what he will experience in the future. Verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This means that the enemies of Jesus will be completely crushed, and he will receive all the spoils of victory. You don't get to divide up the spoils unless you have a complete and total victory. If you have a war and the enemy gets away, that's not a complete victory. If you have a war and there's some armistice and you, and you make a deal and, well, you get this and I'll get that. No, this is dividing the spoil. Complete victory. Enemies totally defeated. They didn't get away. They're all captured. And you get it all. That's what Jesus did. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated the demons. He's defeated all the, that sin has caused. And the full acknowledgement of Jesus' victory will not be completely clear until the millennial kingdom. Then God's going to pull back the curtain and show us everything that Jesus did. But in actual accomplishment right now, Jesus' victory has already occurred at Calvary. There's nothing more that can be done. And so the great and the strong will share in the spoils of victory. Do you realize that's a reference to you? You are called the great and the strong here. He's going to divide the portion with the many and he'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Because you have put your faith in him, you are going to share in the spoils of victory. That means you are going to own the universe with Jesus. He's going to give us tasks to do in the millennium. We're going to live on the earth the new heaven and the new earth. And we're going to be on the earth living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years, which will lead to the eternal state. What an awesome thing to think about. Do you realize that the Spirit of God will never allow believers to forget what Jesus did, that he paid it all? You cannot add anything to it. Notice what it says, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. His death on the cross was enough to pay the penalty of the sins for an infinite number of people. That's why the Bible teaches he died for the sins of the world. But the efficiency is only for those who believe. And that's why it says he bore the sin of many in the sense of it's efficient for those who believe. Do you believe? Do you? Okay, I'm going to quit. I know I need to. But I ask you again, do you know him as your Savior? This is what we've been talking about today. In summary. In the summary. The submission of Christ. We have the exact circumstances of his death and burial in Isaiah 53, 7-9. Isn't that amazing? And secondly, we have the exaltation of Christ. The ultimate culmination of his work on the cross in Isaiah 53, 10-12. That's what I've been trying to get across to you. So in this part two of the suffering servant first time we looked at the mystery and the suffering and now we look at the submission and the exaltation so what can we draw from this what principles can we draw instead of ending with uh, the last verse of isaiah like isaiah did i want to end with the principles from the prophet and I just remind you, number one, our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of submission. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, I've got to be a submissive person. How about you? Examples are meant to be followed. 
And I want you to think, how might you be better at being submissive today? We're to be submissive to one another. Serve someone else. Secondly, how important is it to you that God predicted the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ hundreds of years before it took place? Here we are reading the English Bible, which is based on the Hebrew Bible, which is a language of ancient times that is very hard for anybody to figure out. And yet God has, has preserved his word so that here we are today looking at these words that God gave so long ago. Is that important to you? Does it strengthen your faith? But I ask you, why do some people doubt? To me, this is just amazing. Do you realize the book of Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Our, our oldest Hebrew Bible copies before Dead Sea Scrolls were um, not before the time of Jesus. You realize that? But the Dead Sea Scrolls have almost the whole book of Isaiah. Surprise! And that's scraps of every other part of the Old Testament except for Esther. God has interesting ways of building our faith. Why do some people doubt? I don't know. When somebody offers you a gift that's the best gift ever. Number three, how do you envision the exaltation of Christ? Is this why Jesus Christ is the center of our worship? When you come to worship, do you realize why we lift up Jesus and not the Holy Spirit like some people do? You go to a church where the Holy Spirit is number one, you're off track. You follow? Keep that in mind. And there's a lot of them like that. Okay, finally, let us lift up the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, because the Bible says, in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. You worship Jesus. You worship all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you, and I pray, Lord, that our time together would be profitable, that we would allow your word to just penetrate our hearts and minds and cause us to worship you in deeper ways and to trust you and help us to realize that you planned all this and you provided for us and you've saved us and your mercy is real and new every day. And no matter what our burdens and our problems are today, we have a Savior who knows us and loves us and will help us through them. And I pray that we'll believe that and see it and live it today. And so may all the glory be yours, we pray in Jesus' name.